All right, so as I said, welcome to our uh, Wireside Chat for June. And our guest tonight is Gregory Compass. Uh, Gregory is um, a one of the, the first instructors that we hired for the MFA program um, about five years ago. Uh, he, um, in that amount of time, he's lived in, I, I think this is the third state that you've lived in in that yeah. in that time but but he's remained a constant uh, figure at, at SNHU he helped us to develop this program uh, he served as a subject matter expert and since then he's been a stalwart instructor uh, extremely knowledgeable in many different areas uh, from uh, writing itself of course but also um, uh, the publishing and marketing of uh, his own work he's he um, uh, experiments a lot in different uh, methods of delivery, uh, self-publishing uh, platforms and strategies. So I think we're very lucky to have him here uh, tonight. And we're also in this um, episode of Wireside Chat going to be talking about Pride, um, or we're celebrating Pride, that's what's going on this whole month. Um, but I thought we would also take a moment to kind of talk a little bit about um, the impact uh, that uh, LGBTQ writers ha are increasingly having on the publishing space and literary world and what we see um, the prospects of that continuing to be. Um, and I'm joined tonight by Anne-Marie Yerkes as my co-host. Anne-Marie is an other longtime serving instructor at, in, the, in the MFA program, uh, also has been here right from the start. And um, we're very thrilled to have her as in her first co-hosting uh, opportunity. Thank you. So, so without without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Gregory to just you know introduce yourself a little bit, and and um, and then we'll we'll get really get the ball rolling. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and yeah. I'm sorry. And hey, I want to. I want to encourage everybody, if you have questions, please type them in the chat and we'll, we will relay them to, to Gregory or to any of us if you have questions and we'll answer them. Okay, sorry, now I'll, now I'll shut up. No, it's, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, you've done a great introduction. I, I, I love that I'm part of SNHU. I like the program. Um, I, I talk about it probably too much to people. I, I, I meet a lot of writers. I go to a lot of conferences. Conferences are a big deal for me. And um, I find myself talking about SNHU and how special it is because it has the genre focus. Um, my MFA did not have a genre focus. It was a literary focus, um, like most MFAs in the country. So, so I'm really glad that I got to be part. And, and it's worth noting that I got the job. I was introduced to, to SNHU and I got the job as a subject matter expert because of my LinkedIn profile. So if you don't have a LinkedIn profile, we should start right there. It's like that's the first thing to put on your list that you should you should update your LinkedIn profile. Um, I had my resume there and, and they were looking for subject matter folks. And uh, because of the, the LinkedIn profile and my website, uh, I was offered an interview. And then from the interview, it went from there. So I, I love that I've been part of SNHU from, from the MFA from this early place. And um, now I've been there long enough and taught enough sections that I'm also working on another master's degree um, <laughs> because if you've been teaching long enough, you get to take classes at SNHU too. So I'm also seeing it from a student's perspective now, and I'm really enjoying being part of the program. So um, there's an awful lot going on that's good. And um, I like that the, the program also keeps evolving. Um, I guess I'm not really talking about myself now, but but SNHU, but but um, but I like that the pro the program keeps evolving and changing, and new elements are being added, and we keep refining things. So I love that I get to be part of that, and uh, I love working with adult learners. I've been doing that for a very long time. I ran a large um, writers group in in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is where I lived before I moved to Savannah, which is where I am now. And uh, I've, I've taught in the libraries there and I've taught grant programs and I've taught grant funded programs. I've gotten some national endowment for the arts grants and all kinds of interesting things to work with adult learners. So um, I think it's a, you know, I, you find your niche and you find what you like to do and then you focus on it. And then of course, along the way, I've written a whole bunch of books. So, um, <laughs> and like all that, I, you know, I do love to try new things. I've been traditionally published. I've been, I've indie published. I indie published a lot of stuff right now. Uh, I, I've done all kinds of 
of things in between, published other people, worked on anthologies. I love the publishing industry and I love technology. So as we've been watching the internet, I've been part of it since it began practically, um, seeing how you could publish on the internet and utilizing the tools back before we had anything interesting like we do now. I mean, it's so easy to get involved and to publish your own work. And sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes not a good thing, but but um, but I love all of that. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about anything I do with anyone who will listen at any point ever. Um, and that some of that self-promotion and some of that's just enthusiasm. So I'm really glad to be here and be part of the, the pride celebration as well. So um, I've been with my husband for 22 years. So I think I qualify as a, a proud gay person. I don't know. Um, so, but but in in that in that span of time, both as a, a a gay person and as a writer and a gay writer, you must have seen many changes in in uh, the receptivity of the publishing industry, especially in the mainstream publishing industry, to uh, LGBTQ uh, writers and, and and not just writers, but I mean open. Uh, I'll, I'll, obviously, there's always been many LGBTQ people in the publishing industry, but but it seems like as it opened, you know, people more people came out of the closet in 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 the in the so-called real world. The same thing was happening in the publishing industry. Absolutely, I do think we're still underrepresented just in general. Um, people, people, whatever your letter is. LGBTQA++, right? I mean, whatever your letter is, um, we're, we're very, we're, we remain underrepresented, like a lot of other um, groups, you know, where things are changing, but they haven't changed very fast. My very first book that was published was um, 50 Fabulous Gay-Friendly Places to Live, and it was published in 2005, and at the time, it was leading edge. It was the very first time anything like that had ever been published by a mainstream publisher. Uh, it was part of the 50 Fabulous series. They had um, 50 Fabulous Places to Retire, 50 Fabulous Places to Raise Your Kid. There might kids, there might have been a few others. And they decided to add the, the gay book. And when I was first invited to, to do a, um, a proposal, book proposal for that, um, the live part wasn't, wasn't part of the idea. It was really 50 Fabulous Gay-Friendly Places. Um, and then the... <laughs> When I submitted my book proposal, they said it was too gay. Um, so, yeah, about a gay book, right? And it was too gay. But I got it, and I had sort of, I had sort of camped it up a bit in the book because I thought that's what they might be looking for. Uh, it was not. And I asked if I could do a second proposal, and they didn't have anybody else that had turned anything in interesting to them. So I did a second proposal that was less gay um, and a little more just the facts, ma'am, kind of a presentation. Yeah. And um, and and it and it was approved. And I I wrote um, this book, this this 120 130 thousand word book in six months, um, because that was my deadline for that first project. Uh, and it was published. And this is this is really before the internet became what we what we know of as the internet as a resource for things. Um, in the in the you know 20 years ago, it was really just a random place of um, of websites. And it was really scattered and there was no focus and there was no Internet 2.0, 3.0. None of that had happened. There was no social media. I mean, this was at the beginning. My book um, came out with a CD in the back that was searchable. And that, that was cutting edge the at the time. And that was leading edge at the time. And um, and my book did very well with libraries. So it went into a second printing and, and it was a it was a leading edge publication. And there's um, I love this story because we've used it as a joke. Um, with everything else I published since then, my husband and I. So a group of us from from I was living in Nevada at the time, and a group of us had gotten a booth at the Nevada uh, at um, uh, one of the county fairs. It wasn't the state fair; it was the Clark County Fair. And we had gone in together and to promote our work. And we had so we had I don't know about eight authors with a, about 15 books. And we paid, you know, we all chipped in and we, we purchased this booth and we worked in shifts. So whoever was there manning the booth got to put their books on the front table and everyone's else books were on the back table. It only seemed fair, right? Because you're there doing the work. And there was a, a group of uh, two women walking a group of school children past these booths to, to, to the entertainment tent. And in a very loud stage whisper, the woman said, 
the word gay is right in the title, right in front of all these children. Um, and so the, that's become sort of our joke that, that the word gay is right in the title um, for a lot of my work. And, and, uh, and I've enjoyed, I don't know who that woman was, but I really appreciate that I got the moniker from her all these years later. We still, we still laugh about it. But, it. but it was leading edge and unheard of. And, and, and we, books like that just didn't exist. And of course, now that they didn't go into another reprint, they used, they used to update those books every five years and they stopped because the Internet now, you don't need books like that to search for places that are safe and friendly. You don't you know, you can just do a search on the Internet, places to raise your kids, places to, to gay friendly cities, that sort of thing. Um, but at the time, it was it was at the very leading edge of all of that. So I'm glad I got to be part of that. Um, and it did well in the library. So it actually the book went into a second printing, which was kind of cool. And um, and to be fair, I made very little money off of it. So um, very first book contract, mistakes were made, um, you know, and that's how that goes, too. So at one point I was making more money from my Amazon affiliate link than I was actually in royalties from the book. But the book remained a bestseller on Amazon for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last five or six years, it was um, because of the resale market. So the author gets no kickback from resale. When someone sells a used book on, on Amazon, it, it goes into the ranking but the author doesn't mm. see anything of that beyond rankings. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like there's so many questions that I could ask just based on that on that one story. <laughs> um, what, the one that occurs to me is, is like, here's something that happened like uh, 20 some years ago. And that this woman is scandalized by the by the presence of the, the word gay in the title of your book and feels that it's a danger to the children who are walking by. And in, in a way, we kind of, you know, ha ha, we laugh at that, how far we've come. But at, at the same time, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, it, it almost feels as though there's a very powerful backlash that's building right now that is more or less articulating that exact same worry, you know, that children yep. should not be exposed to whatever, you know, whatever socially, whatever has made a degree of social progress, they're again it. And they and they don't want and the reason that they give for that is, you know, protecting the children. Right. We've that that's been a phrase that's been around in a lot of communities, not just the gay community um, for forever. Um, I, I've always said this and I and I will stand by it. I think the children are going to be just fine. Um, the kids are actually adjusting to the changing world very, very well. Um, you know, I have a niece and nephew who are in their early 20s and they're. They're more liberal and more open and more accepting of different of differences than any any group of people I've ever met in my entire life. And I know it's not just them as individuals. I know it's their their collective groups. So so there's that. But but it's the adults who are scared and they're afraid of losing control and um, losing their power. And and we see it all the time, not just with gay titles, but with a lot of different titles. This whole we're back in this era of banning books. Um, you know, it, it seems to run in waves. Every seven or eight years, we see a new wave of, of banning books. And a lot of the titles are gay or gay related. Um, this whole, um, it's been the moniker for Florida, don't say gay um, law. That, that law is going to be perpetuated across the country. And um, yeah. so we have to be vigilant. We have to be as vigilant as we possibly can, um, because if they're going to take away my right to publish, you could be next. Um, and I say that to a lot of writers, you know. Um, Books should be available. The one advantage we have, I was just talking to, to, to a writer about this two or three days ago, is that I didn't have the Internet when I was growing up. Um, it didn't exist. And and it was hard to find. We were talking about gay titles. Um, I think this might have been with a student in one of my classes. We were talking about the, the availability of gay titles, gay and lesbian titles. Um, I'll use the moniker gay, and I know that's wrong, but, but gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender titles. What, they didn't exist and and you couldn't find them in the library. And if you look, grew up in a small town like I did, you couldn't go in and ask your librarian. They, they were like, oh, we don't have anything like that here. You shouldn't even be talking about it. I mean, that was what was said to me when I, as a young person going to a library, um, you know, there were dirty bookstores, but those were, were for different kinds of publications, right? So, right. so the, there was, two, right? And almost all the gay characters in early literature and movies all die in the end because that's the tragic ending that they should have. So, so there, very few gay characters being represented in a positive light as I was coming of age. And, and young people today 
um, all people today, not just young people, have access now because of the internet and because of Amazon. I love Amazon. People are kind of negative toward Amazon, but I love Amazon as a clearinghouse for so many works that you can easily search for a book and find it on any topic you want. Um, you can search the internet for lists of books that you that that represent you, whatever you might be. And there are books available now. Some of them aren't well written, but they're there. And and you have that you have access in a way that that when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s didn't in the 80s and the 90s I mean it just didn't exist if you didn't live in a big city there was no access to a bookshelf full of gay literature I mean there just I, wasn't yeah. bookstores didn't care you know I so, remember so I we have in, that now. Uh, oh I'm sorry to interrupt you I lived in Washington no, D.C. No, when I did my MFA. Are we having microphone issues? Sorry. <laughs> can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay. We can hear yeah. And I remember the Lambda Lambda bookstore, uh, mm-hmm. which was an excellent bookstore. I think it's still there. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody knows. Um, but that was Most my first experience, like now. really being able to read literature that was specifically gay with gay characters. And I remember a book called A Stone Butch Blues. And I can't remember her last name, but her first name is Jess. And I remember reading that book and being so blown away. So if anybody's looking for a great book. um, And then I actually got to meet her at Lambda Lambda a couple of years later and um, talk to her in person. So um, and I did want to ask you, Gregory, um, like if we were to do like a historical like look back at gay literature, what would be something that stands out from the past, like maybe from the 20s or 30s, 40s, uh, um, that would be Jungle, like a quality thing to read? Yeah, Ruby Fruit Jungle remains one of one of the best right. lesbian books. Um, and it, it's been banned multiple, you know, multiple generations have banned it. Um, I, I love anything by Hollingsworth, but, but that really doesn't get you. He started publishing in the late 70s, the 80s. Um, Alan is pretty amazing. And, and one of the conferences I go to, they bring the legends in and he's one of the legends who comes in. Um, the Lure by Felice Bacano, also from the 70s, um, was was leading edge and tradition. Almost everything was traditionally published, um, which is also an interesting thing through these smaller publishers. Um, and um, Felice Bacano is worth looking into from a historic standpoint because he, he and some of his friends started a publishing firm and published a lot of um, queer titles that would have never gotten published um, and distributed them. So, so he's very big um, in our history. Um, there, there isn't a lot that I'm that I'm aware of. There, they, there are some books, but but there isn't a lot that I'm aware of from really before the 70s. Um, there are a few things from the 60s, but and there there were there were those um, pulp fiction novels yeah. that do show up every once in a while with the wonderful yeah. covers. Great, these fantastic covers. covers. Yeah, like, great covers. Um, <laughs> and gay men together and things like that. They're very hard to find um, from a traditional standpoint, even from Amazon or, or, or eBay or something. But sometimes if there are still some some a lot of used bookstores around the country, and those are places where you can often find those because, you know, what happens to books when you die, they get donated to used bookstores and goodwill. So, um uh, sad, but that's what happens to our libraries. And 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 so you can often find them in, in the used bookstores. And those I don't have titles for off the top of my head, but but um but they're but they're wonderful titles. They're very um almost a little bit hitting the nail on the head in double entendre and <laughs> yeah. and uh they're just really wonderful. And so a lot of that's from the the pulp novels are probably from the fifties and the early sixties, I would say. Um, you know, there are a couple of I, I wish I'm sorry I didn't you know, you never know what you're going to talk about. And so the, but there are a couple of really good books on gay, gay historic literature and banned books um, that a lot of these titles fall into. So that would be if 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 the, the his, history of publishing is something you're into, um, there are some resources out there. And, and I'm happy to find them. If people want to email me, um, you can find me pretty easily and, and I'll be happy to, to give you a, a list of a couple of those as well. I just don't have them right in front of me tonight. So that, that would be great. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm yeah. going to um, uh, get to one question that's that a student has has uh, posted and then we'll, we'll, we can get back to our discussion as well. Uh, but th- this is from Cassandra Gherkin, who wants to know, is it true that if you want to traditionally publish that the publishers don't want you to be indie published as well? 
Um, from, I meet a lot. I've met a lot of publishers and agents with my conference work. When, when I was in Nevada, I worked on. I was part of the Las Vegas Writers Conference for a number of years, and so I got to meet a lot of agents and publishers. And it's been shifting a bit over time. Um, Andy Ware's, of course, a great example of that with The Martian. Um, he 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 published that pretty much on his blog. Then he re republished it on Apple um, and gave the book away, tried to give the book away and Apple didn't want that, started selling it for 99 cents. It did very well. And of course um, he ended up with a traditional publishing contract and then um, the movie was made and the second book came out, um, which has gone a very different traditional route. So um, there are ways to do it. I, one of the things that, that a lot of the agents have said over the years that used to be no. The answer was just as flat out no. If you've indie published, they didn't want anything to do with you because a lot of traditional publishers were anti-indie publishing. That is changing. Um, it's just changing. The world is changing. Things are moving faster. One thing that I do think is true is if you have indie published that you have to have a sales record um, and some good reviews to be able to traditionally publish something else uh, afterward. If you publish something and you have no reviews and you have no sales numbers, you know, their attitude is going to be, why would we want to traditionally publish you if you didn't do the work you needed to do on an indie publishing standpoint, um, which is a little harsh. But but I think, you know, it, there's some truth to that. If you have a big following, if you have it depends on what you're writing, too. But if you have a big following already, if you have a lot of Twitter followers or Instagram followers or TikTok, TikTok is big right now. If you have a lot of TikTok followers the odds are pretty good that they'd be willing, even if you've indie published something, to traditionally publish you because you have a following. So much of it, it's a business. Um, as much as we love the art part of it, publishing the industry is a business. So it's about selling books. And um, so you need a following to do that. That said, they're also, for those who are worried, I have a very good friend, Amanda, she wouldn't mind me saying her name, Amanda Skenendor. Um, her fourth book comes out in, I think, about a week. She writes historic, uh, historic fiction. Um, historic women's fiction, and she's traditionally published. Um, I helped work with her on her first book as part of the writer's group. Um, she's a straight writer, but that's okay. We like her anyway. And um, uh, any, her first book came out and it didn't do very well, but she had a contract for two books. Then her second book came out and it didn't do very well. Her third book come, came out and she won a, liter, a library award and did very well. And then her other two books have, have picked up, right? Backlist. Once you find a reader, they read your backlist. And book four is coming out, about to come out. And, and she's got some, some momentum behind her. So there are still, because I know that this has come up a lot, whether traditional publishers are willing to invest in their writers. And they absolutely are. If they like you and they, and they like the work you're doing and they like the niche that you've, the box you found yourself writing in within a genre, they're willing to put time into you. And Amanda is a great example of that. She's a good writer and she chooses these interesting subjects and um, historic, right? So she does interesting things. Her, her book that did well was on leprosy, um, a le you know, an old leprosy camp in Louisiana. Um, and we used to send lepers to internment camps, basically, in America. And she got um, a notice by the um, attorney, or not the attorney, the, the, who's the med top medical person in the country? Oh, the Surgeon the, General. Um, Surgeon General. We were just talking about the Attorney General because of the, the hearings going on. But the Surgeon General um, uh, actually gave her like a blurb said something nice and tweeted or blogged about it and the book took off and it got into a bunch of libraries. So magic does happen, but it wasn't magic, right? Because she'd been building momentum with those other books. So that's, she's built a career from, from zero. Um, so that those things do happen. Um, it's it, a little it's, off topic for today, but. but they it, do it, it sounds, it sounds as though she um, was also not just writing the book, but doing the work necessary to promote the book. Um, yeah, and she did, yeah, and she did get some help from her publisher too, um, especially by book two. Um, when you're traditionally published, your publishers have to submit you for awards and things. When you're indie published, you have to find a way in. Some awards are open to you, and some awards aren't. Right. Um, so yeah, so there, yeah, so she was doing some of the work and building her following and um, doing some other interesting promotion things. So, um, but but it was a slow, hard. It's a bit of a slog, and she was a bit scared. Um, but they did come up with that second contract for two more books. And um, thankfully, they did, because now they're yeah. going to they made the investment. It's a little bit old fashioned what they did with her. And um, so that does still happen. Yeah. Just putting that out there. I mean, um, I, I, I don't think one's better than the other traditional or indie. I think I think every book has a home. And, it, and however you want to be published as an author, that's what you should do. You should pursue that as far as you possibly can. If you want to be traditionally published, do the work write the great book, write a great query, search, search for agents, 
um, go to conferences and meet people, do the work and, and, and find your agent to get into traditional publishing. It's hard, but it's worthwhile if that's what you want. Um, it opens a whole different set of doors than indie publishing. Indie publishing, very different um, of the work level and how you get there. So um, yeah, and I, both. I know, I know many, many writers now kind of move more or less effortlessly back and forth between them, or they have kind mm -hmm. of parallel uh, publishing careers. Maybe they publish uh, traditionally under one name and then they have an indie uh, career under another name. So I think that's, I mean, that's good for writers. So I'm happy about it. Right. Um, well, yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, your new series, Queer Planet, um, mm -hmm. because uh, first of all, I'm just interested in, uh, I'm a science fiction guy. I'm, I'm uh, a speculative fiction writer. So I'm, I'm very interested in that aspect of it, but I'm also interested in um, the uh, the platform that you're using and the strategy that you're following. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. Um, so I, my, I have a series called the Broadway series, which um, it's a bunch of gay characters. It's set in New York City. It's a bit nostalgic. Um, and that's where Tamburlaine, we were talking about Tamburlaine earlier. That's one of those books. Um, and then this, I broke a bunch of rules, but but I, I've always written across genre. I haven't just stuck to a single genre, and um, which is kind of a rule breaker, and it makes so it makes marketing harder. Um, but I do Nano Rimo every year. I love Nano in November, and if you don't know what that is, a National Novel Writing Month is the month of November. It's a free event that happens, and you write fifty thousand words in thirty days. Uh, and I've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years. I've, not from the beginning. It's been around for 21 or 22 years, but but I've been doing it for a long time. And I've gotten, Tambor Lane came out of that. Many of my books, the first draft came out of, of NaNoWriMo. And I am a traditionalist. So I open a blank page on November 1st without a plan. And I pants my way through a novel. That's how I work. And then I go back and, and my revision involves an outline. But but anyway, so I set, I opened my, my document on November 1st. And this character was in a space pod somewhere on a planet. And that's where it came from. I, I and I broke the rule. You know, you're never supposed to start. A, there are all these rules, right, that don't that exist, but don't exist. You're never supposed to start a novel waking a character up. But that's like that's like forbidden. Right. It's exactly what happens because it's the only way it can happen. He, he mm -hmm. wakes up on this new planet in a new environment and everything about it is new. Um, from the, the way he feels and he wakes up in this chair encased in plastic and um, they're in these pods, which are actually like little houses, which I'm fascinated by the whole little house thing. And, um, and he wakes up and there are 20 of these pods and they get outside and there's 20 men, well, 19. Um, one of the guys um, didn't make it. And um, and they have to figure they're on a new planet with two sons. They know they're on a new planet because there are two sons. I break that rule, too. Right. Everyone's so tired of the two sons. And, in, in, um, you know, it never happened. Right. Uh, in science fiction. But there it is. Right. Because I'd always wanted to do it. And the atmosphere is green. And um, and that and all of a sudden I'm in a new world. And that was how that started. And I wrote it really fast. And it was right before the pandemic and we had just moved to Georgia and I didn't really have a connection or a community. So I spent a lot of time writing and um, I started a new writer's workshop space. I'd always wanted to open a space um, which had just started to do well before the pandemic. And then it crashed and burned because we were all in our homes for a year and a half. So um, anyway, so I had a lot of time to write. And so I wrote I wrote four and a half novels very fast, a couple hundred thousand words very quickly. Um, they came out basically fully formed and I just followed their journeys. And there's, there are these, there are plots and there, you know, there's conflict and there's things happening, but um, basically, and the novels follow um, ship one, ship two, ship three, ship four, because every book starts with a new ship arriving or not arriving. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've hit one where the ship does not arrive, um, which is good because it's a lot. And I had always wanted to write a big saga with a lot of characters I, I every every book has the potential of adding 20 new characters. It's a lot of characters. Um, there's a lot of death because I can't manage a lot of characters at that level. Um, but but death would happen. Mistakes right would happen. People and it turns out they're all gay. All the men being shipped to this other planet are gay. They don't know who's doing it. We're into book five. They don't know who's doing it. They don't know why. They don't know why they've been selected. They've been. They are all Americans, um, but they're a very diverse cast. 
Uh, I also wanted to write a very diverse cast. They aren't all young and buff and hot, which is the tradition in gay literature where all the men are young and buff and hot. And let me tell you something, that is not true. There are lots of us who are not young or buff or hot anymore. Um, maybe I was at one time, but I'm not anymore. So I do have a, a wide range of ages and body types and belief systems because um, I'm exploring all those topics as a human being. So so that I wanted this environment. And the only way I could do it was to put them on some other planet. I mean, realistically. But I but I started it day one on NaNoWriMo and that this is what showed up. So um, I had four, you know, four books finished. Half of book five became the ending for, I realized was the ending for book four, but um, which has now been published. And my plan was, as I started writing quickly um, and learning to write fast, um, that was a new thing. These are also like, I don't know, I'm up to, I think, book 18 or 19 in my writing career. So um, I've written a lot of books. And so I'm learning to write fast and pulpy kind of, um, which I really kind of like. And and I, I had decided I was going to explore this thing called rapid release publishing. Um, and that was my goal. And then then. So that's where I was heading. I was going to get a bunch of novels finished so I could do rapid release. If you haven't heard of rapid release before, um, there are a lot of authors making there are a lot of authors doing it. And there are some some authors making really, really good. Um, they're primarily using uh, Amazon as their release vehicle, although there are some who are releasing wide as well, because there are people who are anti-Amazon and go other directions, and there are lots of other choices. Um, the Amazon thing works because of the unlimited pages, uh, unlimited Kindle unlimited reading, because um, there are some avid Kindle unlimited readers who consume a lot of content, and you get paid. It looks like right now it's about four cents a page um, for Kindle unlimited. They, they boosted that up again. Anyway, so the plan was to do this rapid release, which is releasing a book every month. Um, and there are people writing to that timeline. I cannot quite write to that timeline. That's why I was trying to get a block of books mm, available and edited and revised and all of that first to go out. So sometimes it appears people are writing to that timeline, but in reality, they've stockpiled a series and then they release them. And uh, if you're interested in rapid release, um, there's lots of material. There's a group called um, 50K 20 Books. Um, 50,000, uh, 20, no, other way, 20 books, 50K, 20 books to 50K. Because the a guy came up with this concept, if he wrote and released 20 books, he could make feasibly, he did all the math, 50 grand a year, and he could go live in um, Mexico. Um, and he's kind of done that, although he's far surpassed that, Craig Martell. Um, and there's now a big conference in November, which I will be at as an attendee, not a speaker, um, that's all about that. And so a lot of it's indie publishing, rapid release, all of those things. Joanna Penn is another person who's involved in this. Many of you have probably heard of Joanna Penn, especially through the MFA classes. She's a resource on some of the classes. Anyway, so you release quickly. You do all kinds of marketing related to it. You have a quick backlist of new books. And basically, you drive people into book one. Uh, and hopefully, there's read through. And the one thing I will say is I've I've made more money on Kindle Unlimited reads in the last couple of months than I ever have before. Um, I am seeing read through on the series. Uh, and and I'm about ready to start doing the next level of promotion on book one. But before I released all of this, um, Kindle Vela came out. And I decided to try, I don't know if you're familiar with Kindle Vela, but they're releasing um, basically chapters. It's a serial release of books. So since I had all this material, I thought I'm going to try the new thing because I love to try the new thing. And on one side, the good thing is I love to try new things. On the other side, as an early adapter, the audience usually isn't there mm -hmm. yet. And I get a little frustrated that we don't have audience because it's a brand new thing. And Amazon did not do the level of marketing they had sort of promised the early adapter authors. Um, but there are some people making incredible money. I mean, 100 grand a month money. Wow. Um, romance wow. writers. The romance writers are doing very well on Kindle, on the Vela, um, Kindle Vela. Um, romance readers read a lot, just in, in general. Um, whatever your genre, of uh, subgenre of romance is, romance readers read a lot. So it's a very good place if that's your niche um, to play with uh, Kindle Vela or um, a rapid release or any of the other publishing things. So I tried Kindle Vela and it failed miserably. And watching almost all the sci-fi people, a lot of the gay literature people, um, people in my lists um, all failed. Uh, several of us actually ended up having a conversation and we were all not doing well. And um, 
Amazon changed their rule for a lot of us and would let us pull our work out. There were all these rules about how long you mm -hmm. had to leave your work in um, that you agreed to when you started publishing. Um, but because so many of us were doing so poorly, there were so many of us who wanted out. They let people out without any penalty, which I give them credit for because they didn't have to do that. But a lot the readers, the writers who are doing well there are doing incredibly well. Um, a lot of those writers went in with followings, big followings to start with, but they're doing incredibly well. Um, so anyway, so I pulled all my stuff and I went back to my original plan. I gave myself another six months and I revised and edited and went through an editor and all of that. And then I started doing the, the rapid release this year. I just had my fourth novel come out in the series and it's been, I've learned so much and it's been really fun um, and uh, interesting. And, um, you know, I'm trying to get book five finished so I can get it out on time. It's hard um, to write to write fast and to keep writing fast and um, you know, but and in the meantime, I've written two other novels, um, so because things happen and I sit down and I meet a character and I write a novel and I wrote a serial killer. Um, I've never thought I would write a serial. My my husband loves dead guys, um, so I you know there needs to be a dead body on page one. That's how he gets engaged in books. Um, so a lot of my books have a, a body now on on page one who's dead. And um, but I have a murder mystery that's hopefully the first in a series that's now been edited. But I decided I want to write at least book two, if not book two and three, to get that ready. And then I have my second steampunk novel. So. So I have I'm sorry, I wandered way off, way off course. But but, um, but so I have all of this stuff going on all the time, um, which helps it's, me interested. It's not that you have trouble writing, writing quickly to a deadline. It's that you're writing so much quickly to to a deadline. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so let me and I let have me, this new gay character that new two new gay characters that have showed up during my prompt classes. So I've been writing all these prompts about Gede and Alistair. And so that's going to turn into something, too. But anyway, yeah. So. so let me let me go to one of our questions here from yes. the from the audience. Uh, do you think yeah. that don't do you think that don't say gay campaigns will negatively impact our ability to find an agent traditional publisher for queer themed work? No, I don't. I think I think if anything, it's amplifying the need for more queer work. I personally, I, I think this is a react. The don't say gay and all these these um, laws and rules and banning and all the stuff that's happening is reactionary. Um, I think one of the things that's happening right now in publishing that I'm seeing with short works, especially um, and with promotions. If you read Publisher Weekly, there's a lot of promotions happening of um, marginalized voices, people of color, um, and 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 that's the work that's being promoted. There's lots of queer books coming out. There's lots of people of color. There's lots of interesting voices that I've never experienced before. Um, and, and I don't even have all the right language because it's changing so quickly about how we can talk about it um, and, and what titles and, and whatever you can give to it. But there's a lot of um, indigenous people literature that we've been reading for our writers group. Uh, we have a, I'm part of a book club we've been reading. There's a lot of um, Black literature, there's a lot of Caribbean literature. There are lots of queer things that are coming out. I just think, I think, I think anything that happens over there politically has very little to do with what's happening here. And I think if you're a queer writer, you write, you write your book and then you, you, you seek out however you want to be published. There, there are lots of um, periodicals, lots of gay publishers, lots of genre publishers that are looking for content all the time. It's what they do. And they're not going to stop doing it because one governor is anti-gay. Matter of fact, they, they're going to have these plans to get gay books into the hands of teenagers because that's where they need to go. Um, so so, so I'm, and I am political, but I'm not political. And I, and I think you need to write the book you want to write. Write it. Just write the book you want to write and then seek publication. There, there are lots of publishers that are that only publish gay and lesbian literature, that only publish queer literature. The whole, you know, there are there's there are two or three new trans publishers. Um, the small publishers, sometimes they last, sometimes they, they don't, but but there are people looking for content all the time. There are gay periodicals looking for content all the time. And some of the traditional periodicals, the, the journals are looking for queer literature because they're trying to fulfill the need, their new mission statements of other voices. So don't be afraid of who you are. Don't let those people make you afraid of trying to get your work out there. Write your work and, and work on getting it published and that you're going to get rejected. But that has nothing to do with the markets. I mean, we, anyone who's publishing and putting their work out there gets rejected. Lots of rejection. I, I get a rejection from the Paris Review 
at least once a month. And do you know why that is? Because every time I get a rejection, from, I really want to be in the Paris Review. So every time I get a rejection from the Paris Review, I send them the next thing. It's already written and edited and revised and ready to go. As soon as they know me, I'm sure that like, oh, the guy with the green ink, I always send them in envelopes with green ink on the outside. Oh, the guy with the green ink is back. You know what I mean? So I hope they think that about me, you know, and I get the little tiny, they don't, you know, they do old fashioned snail mail submissions still. So, um, yeah, I, I, you got to be submitting and just submitting and submitting and you're going to get rejected and then you're going to get accepted and then you're going to get rejected by the same place that accepted you. This is how this industry works. Once you get a first publishing contract, if you go traditional, um, a lot of contracts have right of first refusal on the next project. So at least you have somewhere to send the next project to. Um, there are We're back to doing a lot of two book contracts. I'm seeing a lot of that from my friends. Um, and I also think in genre fiction, the way to go is to write at least a trilogy. You've got to write a series. If you want to get accepted, you don't you, you don't sell the whole series at once usually, but you let them know this is book one of a, of a series. Um, people writing series are doing better than people not writing series in genre fiction, um, just because readers. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, hopefully, Gre hopefully Gregory will be back. Um, in the meantime. Um, Question. I Yes, I'm going to answer answer one of the questions here that I feel equipped to answer, which is um, when you go to a conferences, should you bring a work with you for agents to review? And the answer to that is no. Um, you don't want to be schlepping a manuscript around with you to a convention. Uh, if you're if you have the opportunity to talk to an agent, what you should have prepared is a pitch. Um, you should be able to talk um, eloquently and compellingly about your about your novel. He's back. Uh, yeah. And under any circumstances, if you meet the agent at a bar, if you happen to be in an elevator with them, hence elevator pitch. And uh, um, that's what I very strongly recommend. Uh, we I thought he was back. Yeah, I thought he was back. <laughs> he was back momentarily. Maybe they're having a thunderstorm down there. Um, so, Am, you're or Am Marie, you're in um, you're in Florida, aren't you? I am in Florida. So, so that's kind of like we've been talking about, you know, the don't say gay and everything like that. That's kind yeah. of ground central for all, all of that. Yeah. So, so, how have you? What have you noticed in terms of uh, just the general atmosphere and and feeling among writers of in the in your state? Well, you know what I've noticed about Florida? It's very gay here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think maybe some of that is coming from denial or I don't know, but if you want to come to a state that is um, gay here, come here. Yeah. There, this, there is no absence of gay culture here. Um, and I'm only here for a month, but um, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm just here kind of like a, my husband and I both work remotely. So we sometimes go other places just for a variety but um, it says, okay, Gregory says he's back, but we have to turn his mic back on. Yeah, I'm turning his mic. Oh, okay. Okay, so some of the students had some other questions. Let's see if there's anything that we can bring up again. We had a big influx of questions all at once. So if you're waiting yeah. for your question to be answered, uh, we're going to get it. Um, somebody, Nick said he looks, lives in a town where it's hard to find gay literature. Um, so what are some good books to read? Did we answer this question? I don't think so. We, we have not yet answered that question. I'm back now. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah, you're back. Yeah. Good. Um, so my recommendation for literature is um, our libraries. But if you don't have a library in your town, um, Amazon is a great resource. Uh, and you go if you just go for gay lit, um, there, you're going to find all kinds of, of classic stuff. Um, I like Forrester. I like um, Andrew Holleran, I like Felice Bacano. They're all sort of classic places to go. Um, there, there are, and I'm happy to share lists uh, of other books too. I can, I don't have a full list of books in front of me, but, but I, I think Amazon is, you know, it's a great resource. Doing a search on Goodreads for gay literature, another good resource. Um, doing searches for genre now. There's lots of books available in genre that, you know, 20 years ago there weren't. Um, 
there weren't books in genre available as much sci-fi a little bit but but not much so um but now there are so 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 i think that's kind of the way to go um once you find an author that you like you know find support them i also think you know using libraries hoopla is really great if your library has a hoopla or one of the other digitals because you have an access to a much bigger library than you would from their shelves so if you're a member of a if you have a library card most libraries now are part of the digital world um, and you can join and then through there um, you can find lots of books and literature based on um, search engine stuff the nice thing about those is that the authors actually do do better financially um, than they do when it, you take a book off the shelf of a physical library. They're getting a royalty every time you check out a book, which is very nice. So that's one of the new arrangements with libraries. So that would be my recommendation. Um, talk to gay authors gay, that you like. Um, go to gay conferences. There's a great gay conference in New Orleans. that just happened in the spring called Saints and Sinners. I highly recommend um, New Orleans can be a little expensive to visit from a hotel standpoint, but the conference is like $125 for four days. Um, so it's really affordable. They have great sponsorship and um, all the legends come year after year. So um, it's a great way to hear new titles, meet new authors, have the experience. Highly recommend Saints and Sinners in New Orleans. Not the restaurant, but the conference. So, yeah. Um Nick uh, has posted a question and she asks, having had LGBTQIA plus pieces published and being new to the publishing scene, how does one handle being harassed by anti-gay press? Hmm. Um, and do you, I, 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 yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I know that it's, you know, there are like targeted harassment campaigns that take place on Twitter and other social media sites. I wonder if that is what you're referring to, Nick, or are you referring to like something <clears throat> more, I don't know, more, less, less uh, internet based than that? I mean, I see it on, on Twitter all the time. It's just all well, outside oh. of social media. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm a, <laughs> I, I was raised in the early days before social media, of course, and there's an old phrase that, uh, no press is bad press. Even the harassment stuff, um, actually from a marketing standpoint, potentially gets your name out there and, and sells your work. Um, personally, I, I did have a little bit of harassment when my first book came out, but my publisher actually did a pretty good job of protecting me from, from the letters and stuff, although there, I know there were some. Um, but but I, think, I think you ignore whatever you can. You res don't respond. Um, bullies hate when you don't respond. They just hate it when you don't respond. Um, I have been bullied in the publishing world a little bit by other authors. Um, and and, and I, for me, it's you stop the conversation. Um, there are haters out there and you just have to accept that there are haters and then you move on. Um, it's hard sometimes, but you find it. I also think it's good to have a support group of some kind. Um, I have a, a couple of small critique groups that I work with. Uh, one of which was through the Gay and Lesbian Center that I started in Nevada. We still meet online um, through the pandemic and we support each other and we talk about things and, you know, um, we use profanity and then we move on. Right. Um, it's part of part of the industry and it isn't just queer people. I think we all publish and there are haters. I've gotten some horrible one star reviews on Goodreads and things. And that's just part of the journey. Um, the person didn't like the book. Fine. We move on. We have to we have to just have a little bit of a thick skin uh, and move on. So long as it isn't a, a physical threat of violence, and I think a physical threat of violence, you you alert the authorities and hopefully the, they'll be supportive. They aren't always, but hopefully they will be. At least there's a record of it. So, right. I mean, that's that's my nudge. We, we've got about, um... We've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to uh, get to the, the subject that you had suggested that we that we discuss a little bit, which is which is um, making the transition from working in short form fiction, writing short stories, submitting short stories uh, to working on a novel and and putting yourself in that frame of mind. Yeah, I am. Um, there was a book floating around. One of the other professors asked about. Um, 2000 to 10,000 by um, Rachel Aaron, I think it was. And uh, I read it because I thought it would be related to this topic, and it is not at all related <laughs> to this topic, um, just from a point of view. It's, it, it's about how she got her work daily word count up from about 2,000 words a day to 10,000 words. Wow. So from that, that's interesting to me. 
because um, uh, I, I think creating lots of content is good. But um, and then that gives you something to revise. We need words to revise. Um, as far as getting from short form to long form, I, I've been thinking about it since we talked about it. I think it's it's a hole that we need to explore and I don't really have good answers for. I, I, I mean, I truly don't. There's a book I love by Donald Moss called The Emotional Craft of Fiction. And in that, um, I got to do a, a conference day with him and he did a whole day of training. He's really cool. If you have a chance to meet Donald Moss at a conference or something or do an upsell with him. He's got four or five books on writing and I really love the emotional craft of fiction. And one of the reasons I love it is because he talks about the idea of um, not letting your protagonist reach their goal ever uh, until the end, uh, even if it's a small goal. It's not an original idea, but but he really stresses it. But you want micro tension on every page and macro tension for each section and then for the story at large. So micro tension is that idea of not not fulfilling the goal. Whatever the goal is, there's always something standing in the way. And most of us are very hard. It's very hard to do to, um, you know, not solve the problem. My first novel, which is really not very good. People like it. They like the characters. I write great characters, but this is not a great plot. And 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 it's because it's very serial. You know, I I and every chapter the protagonist gets what he wants, more or less. So there's a few wants he doesn't get throughout the whole book, but but it really is these short, a bunch of short arcs. And I think it's that idea of how we transition from short fiction to long form fiction is so how we solve the problem. And and we have to not solve the problem, right? If you're if you're if your protagonist is, needs a drink of water, they're being chased by I don't know aliens, but they need a drink of water. Then when they get to the and they're in a school, for example, they get to the drinking fountain. The drinking fountain has to be broken. They get to the restroom and the sinks are all pulled off the wall. You know, that he's running from aliens, but he really needs a drink of water. The vending machine is unplugged and he doesn't have a dollar that'll go in or mm. something. You know, it, it's stupid. I'm, make, I'm making it stupid just to make the point. But but at that idea of never getting your 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 protagonist the, their drink of water, um, whatever that takes while they're still being chased. Um, you know, there are these moments that we stretch things out and and long form fiction, we get to explore things in more depth. There are subplots, secondary storylines. Um, you know, everything should have some level of romance in it, in my opinion, um, even if it isn't a romance story, right? Because your characters are human and they have physical needs. Um, yet do we, we don't want to spend time eating a lot of meals or going to the bathroom or taking showers. You know what I mean? The everyday stuff, we sort of leave most of that out. Um, unless there's yeah. a reason for it to be there. So you have to kind of pick and choose, but I, I, I don't know. I think it's all about tension um, and, th and the content needs to matter um, too. So, I, but I don't have a good answer for how we get there. Maybe you guys, you guys have both written books. How do you get there? How do you well, get from I, short? I'm going to I'm gonna throw that to you, Anne-Marie. What, what do you think? Well, well, one thing I want to say is that it's okay to write short stories. If you're writing short stories, you don't have to write a novel. No, you know, I mean, I know in our program, we require that. You do, right, yeah. in SNHU, <laughs> so, though, you do. <laughs> yeah. But I, I want all the short story writers to feel okay about writing short no, stories. No, no, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, yeah, um, because I know I know how you feel, because I've been there, too. Uh, you know, you write short stories, and you wonder, like, how do you start writing a novel? Um, and one way to do it is just think about each chapter as a short story, you know, and lots of novels are written in that kind of style. Um, and then also a, a short story can be the beginning to a novel. So you write a short story and that doesn't mean that you're done with that character. You're done with that setting. You're done with that story at all. It might two years later become a novel. So, I'll, you know, just because something is a short story doesn't mean it has to stay a short story. It can also be a novel. Yeah. I mean, and short stories make the best movies. So there's that too, from a yeah. transition standpoint, short stories make much better movies than novels do. I, I think- But for us you too, we need to write the novel. Yes, so. you've got to write a, the novel of at least 50,000 words. You can Don't do it. That. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. So I do think, I do think it's, um, you can use interesting tools. I think um, I, I, I'm a big, becoming a fan of Save the Cat. Um, that, tool for screenwriters, and there is a novel version of it, but I think the screenwriter version is actually better. And um, and it's a great book, it's a great resource, and it talks about the idea of writing for, creating 40 scenes for a screenplay. And I think from a novel standpoint, that's a very good idea because 
40 scenes gets you roughly to, you know, 50, 60,000 words. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do the math, right, you, you write 2000 words per scene or 1500 words per scene. And that puts you into your 60 to 80,000 word goal for most most fiction these days is 60 to 80,000 words. So I think looking at that and looking at the power of scenes and then the tools that screenwriters use, we all have watched a lot of television and movies. We've consumed that. It's in us. We know how to tell stories, but learning how to break it down into those beats, I think that can be very helpful. This coming from a pantser. Um, you know, I do, I pants everything first and then I outline after. But but uh, but I think that's a great tool for learning how to kind of frame a story. And if you read the book or the audio is great because you get to listen to him tell you his read his book to you um, and talk about what he what he's working on. And I, I so I think that's a really good tool um, for learning how to go from shorter form to longer form right now. That's my tool. Do you think there's a danger in that, though, of of starting to write novels that resemble screenplays too much? I, I do. Actually, I do. Um, I think following a formula in general is maybe not the best way to go. But I also think if you've never done it before, you need a tool. And yeah. and having to, and just because you have an outline, I mean, we, we have our students create outlines in, in the genre classes anyway. So just because you write an outline doesn't mean you're going to write the book that's in the outline. Right. So many of us write an outline and then, you know, halfway through your book goes to the right. Your character goes, no, we're going over here. Right. And it ends up being a better story for it. Usually sometimes you end up in an alley and, and you're in a dark alley and you have to kill somebody to get out. But but that can be fun, too. It, but I think have, so it's a tool. I, I don't think there's a this is how you should do it step by step by step. But having a tool that makes you go, oh, now I see the arc of my story. Right. I, yeah. I think being able to see the arc, this may be a way of learning how to go from short fiction to long fiction. Um, right. Having a goal, seeing knowing the end sometimes is all you need. Knowing yeah. the beginning yeah. and the end is is enough. So I, mean, I, I, think, I, I think in a first book, you don't have to worry too much because you're going to write the second book in a very different way. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. No, 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 that's uh, that's very true. And I, I think I think for me, it, it's it was very helpful. Like you, my first novel just came out, you know, I pants the whole thing. Somehow it had been building up in me for my whole life. I never really knew it or understood it, but it, it had been and it came out you know, very well structured and um, the plot was effective. Um, but I couldn't do that for my second novel because I ha- didn't have another 30 years to germinate it. Um, I had <laughs> I had signed a contract and the deadline was, you know, approaching very quickly. Um, what helped me there was basically I stole um, and I, and what I stole was structure. I, I mm-hmm. looked at other books and movies that I liked and that I felt were really effective, and I pulled structural elements out of them. Um, like, you know, you have a you, at a certain point in the novel, you have a scene that does X or a scene that does Y. Um, you want to have this turning point or whatever located at, at you know at a certain point in your second act, something like that. Uh, and I was able to stitch together a structure out of you know the the carcasses of of the of books and movies that I kind of, um, you know, uh, consumed for that purpose. And it was it was effective. And that's more or less what I've done ever since. Um, right. I, and that that's my little secret for for how I was able to transition from from short to long form fiction and do it on a uh, consistent basis. Because right. I still I think- don't know how to do it. If I didn't have like those training wheels or that support system, I don't know what what I would do. Right. I also I love the hero's journey. It's a great tool. Uh, it's a classic tool. Um, Wizard of Oz, right? It's the hero's journey. I've gone to it's, the Wizard of Oz. That's that's a book. I mean, I love that's my favorite movie I've seen. Right, and it's a and it's a hero's time. journey with a hole in it, which yeah. I also love as a, as a teaching example because there's a hole in the hero in the hero's journey. So you, so it shows you you don't have to. There you go. You don't have to use everything. Plot perfect. Yeah. This is yeah. just a book I, I like that I have. Uh, I love Paula Meunier. I don't can, know how to say her you, last name. Can you type that into the chat? Yeah. And all the things you talked about are in Save the Cat, Paul. Okay. All right. All I, I'm gonna, I've been like, resistant to it, but I guess I need yeah, to break I down. I have been and, too. 
<laughs> but I had a student who had the light bulb come on a couple of classes ago and it was save the cat. And I went, okay, so now I have to read it because I have to really understand what the student's talking about. So right. um, I went back and I got the audio version. I listened to it on the treadmill. So I had no choice, you know, and uh, to keep going, which worked out really, really well. And, uh, and now I, everything you just, everything you just talked about, it's about structure and it's about structure. It's not about this has to happen at this point. It's about this has to happen. And right. here it fits good. And, yeah. and our brains are wired toward these things. We're good storytellers. Humans are good storytellers. So, yeah. Well, I think that's a good uh, stopping point for our uh, chat tonight. We've, we've hit the nine o'clock mark. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Gregory Compass. I want to thank Anne-Marie Yerkes for joining me as co-host. I want to thank everyone for uh uh, joining us uh, tonight, taking a little time out of your Monday night. Our next chat will be the second Monday of July. Uh, I have no idea what date that is, but we'll be here nonetheless, uh, guests to be announced. Um, I wish everybody a great night. Thank you. Good night. Bye, everybody.